Are your school days out of sight? When you took English, art, and math, what's your favorite Fahrenheit? How sour are the grapes of wrath? Do you need a challenger for discussing Salinger? Do you love the written word? What happened to the mockingbird? Our show is just beginning, so find a place to sit. These questions will be on the test. It's time for sophomore lit. Welcome back to Sophomore Lit, where we reread your 10th grade reading list. I'm your host, John McCoy, and with me is returning co-host Kathy Campbell. Hello. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> so uh, remind everyone out there who you are and where they might have heard you. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Kathy Campbell. I am known as Mrs. Soup on the internet and also the business unicorn. You can find links to all of the fun things that I do at kathycampbell.com. Well, thanks, uh, Kathy, for being on for what uh, <laughs> is probably a niche <laughs> a niche episode of, of, of uh, Sophomore Lit. Um, we're going to be reading this time uh, selections from uh, Jeffrey Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales from uh, around 1400. This was not probably something you read a lot of in high school, or if you did, you probably read it in translation. Um, what, what's your background with this, Kathy? Yeah, so for a little bit more background. Um, my full first name is Catherine, um, and I was named after Catherine Swineford, who became John of Gaunt's third wife uh, and was also previously um, lover of John of Gaunt. Long story. I'm sure, you know, maybe we can do something about that in the future. I anyway, um, Catherine Swineford's brother-in-law was Geoffrey Chaucer. So that connection uh to to my name and growing up the story always made me really intrigued with Chaucer and like get really excited you know that little giddy of ooh they're mentioning something i know anytime you see it anywhere um and then of course you know the knight's tale movie as terrible like it's not made to be truth <laughs> <laughs> by any means but of course that made me reread it when the movie came out um again and then it was exciting to pick up the books or the story i guess on my ipad hmm. um again to uh read it and kind of feel that that spark again um something about chaucer and how he really looks and explains humanity in a really basic, easy to understand way, it makes it hard to. And obviously, if you're reading the translated from Middle English version, um, it makes it really easy. To, it, it makes it hard to believe that this was written in the 14th century, like 15th. <sighs> How does that work? <laughs> it was what are late, late what 14th, what is late 14th, early 15th. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I was like, wait a second. The number is 13. Yeah, in the 1300s is the 14th century. Clearly, I am in sophomore, uh, uh, sophomore in high school when it comes to figuring out centuries and years and all that jazz. <laughs> okay, you, what you say reminds me of something that is one of those really strange bits of um, trade secrets, uh, which is in art history... 
you, we, we always use like, you know, 20th century, 19th century, whatever. But when you talk about the Italian Renaissance, the convention is to use the Italianate Quattrocento, which means 1400s. So uh, for, for Italian Renaissance painting only, you have to refer to it by the 1400s, 1500s, whatever, instead of the 15th, 16th century. Uh uh, funnily enough, I had a class of Italian Renaissance in college, um, and I vaguely remember that. <laughs> it's been a long time. <laughs> okay, now that we've lost our audience, I want to go back to, yes. <laughs> to Chaucer here. Um, I, I remember the first time I ever became aware of Chaucer was my father was talking to a a college student and they started reciting the general prologue together because both of them had been taught to memorize it in school in, in middle English. And I, I, I fell in love with the sound of it. Um, and then when I was 13, I went to see, uh, the Huntington library, uh, in, 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 out in Pasadena, California. And, uh, they have there the Ellesmere Manuscript of Chaucer, which is the Ooh. folio that everyone thinks of when they think of Chaucer, because it's the one that has yeah. all the illuminations of each of the pilgrims. Um, and ever ever since then, I've 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 held a, a special fascination for Chaucer. Um, I, I took a class uh, on, on Middle English poetry in my undergraduate years where we had to read Chaucer and Gowan, the green knight and Pearl and mm -hmm. some mystery plays and stuff. Um, I'll, I'll tell you this middle English poetry is kind of hit or hit or miss. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so did you, did you go on to study him in any classes or, or unfortunately not or maybe no. fortunately i don't know um it's all just kind of been my own reading of it um and i get really excited anytime there's any sort of commentary in this time um because you know it's not henry the eighth it's not the true you know like war of the roses era it's not like it's kind of in that middle range between you know what people know or care about. Um, and so it doesn't show up a lot in, you know, modern culture, um, which is really a pity, if only because of the love story between Catherine and John, um, which is just incredible. Like this is, we're gonna, we're gonna, you know, come into the area that I know a little bit more about. Um, but like this love story spanned decades in an era when, it wasn't like that wasn't really normal to have a mistress for that long. Um, and the four children that they had together ended up getting, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the word I keep wanting to think, say approved by the Pope, but like became no longer bastards when they got married later in life. And so even though the four children were not, um, legal heirs at birth because their relationship lasted for so long and was so strong when they did get married. The Pope was like, well, clearly you're married now. So these four uh, kids are yours. And uh, they 
like spawned the Tudors and like many, many generations of royalty from those four kids. So it just is like really meaningful. And to think that Chaucer hung out in that same time, you know, he wrote the book of the Duchess about John of Gaunt's first wife. Um, and that is another thing that Chaucer is really like known for. Um, and there's a lot of like speculation that Chaucer had that traditional courtly love mindset with the Duchess um, and like was in John of Gaunt's, you know, entourage and just all of these like intertwining relationships. Court was really just such a small city. Everyone knew everyone else's business. Um, just like any other small town uh, and you're around them so much that it makes sense to have you, you know, you look at the Canterbury Tales and it's such easily identifiable, even now, um, these personality types that you see and you can see that nothing really changes over time. You have these same sorts of um, interactions with people um, and different layers, different sex, different, um, you know, not quite royalty versus not royalty, but pretty darn close in the modern era. Hmm. Well, one thing that does change over time is uh, language. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so, so um, Canterbury Tales, I think, is a, a book that most people uh, who are interested in, in trying it out could pick it up and and probably struggle their way through. It is, uh, you know, Middle English is closer to m modern English by far than, uh, say, Beowulf, yes. which was the last podcast I did. Um, but it, it has its, its, its peculiarities. Um, there was in uh, the, the decades between like 1400 and 1600, there was a strange thing that happened in English called the Great Vowel Shift. All the vowels which had previously been pronounced using continental vowels, like the kind of vowels you would find in Spanish or German or, or, or French. E, for, for example, was pronounced eh, just as it was in France or anywhere else. Uh, and then it everything like shifted forward in the mouth, and the tongue shifted upward in the mouth, and everything became a diphthong. Uh, and we got we get to the strange place where we are today in modern English, where nothing is written the way it is spoken. Yeah. <laughs> but but it does it does mean that if you are willing to give it a try, you can pick up Chaucer and think, okay, I'm going to pronounce these vowels like I do in French. Yes. And then I'm going to. <laughs> I'm going to kind of give it a, a, a slightly Yorkshire accent. <laughs> yeah, I don't speak French or Spanish or really any <laughs> other language. Um, but it feels it, you know, every so often you'll see a sign or something in French or I, you know, you're you're bored and you read the back of the shampoo bottles. And of course, if they're uh, uh, something that's sold in Canada, it has to have the French on it, too. And you can kind of poke through there. A lot of the words like might be similar enough to English that you can figure it out. Um, Middle English feels a little bit like that, but on each easier mode is it's by no means easy and there's still you know some words that you would have to you know look up just to 
confirm what it means. But overall, you can very easily get the gist of it without, you know, a thesaurus or a dictionary or, you know, someone from the 14th century hanging out with you to to help explain what the words are. Um, and that's something that's really interesting at, to like compare and com contrast the Middle English version with the quote unquote translated version and how similar they are. Um, if you're if you're in that in a mood for a fun puzzle. Chaucer wrote Canterbury Tales on and off, I think from something like the 1380s to around 1400. We don't exactly know. Chaucer is actually someone that we do have some records of his life. We know uh, that he was he worked uh, in the court of what Edward the Third. Yep. And he was well regarded in his time as a poet. He like you quite often when people study poetry, there's this romantic vision of the poet as being this undiscovered genius, you know, unloved in his own time. Chaucer was well loved in his time, mm -hmm. and the, and his poems got passed around, and he had always meant to collect all these stories together into this major, um, enormous story cycle, which is basically that 30 pilgrims plus a host from the tavern where they start out in Southwark um, are going to Canterbury to go to the shrine of Thomas a Becket. And the host says, hey, let's pass the time by telling each other stories. And he, his plan is that each of them is going to tell two stories on the way there and then two stories on the way back. So if if Chaucer had, if Chaucer had finished this, that would have been 120 stories. Um, it's a uh, lot. And, <laughs> and, and and spoiler alert, he never did finish it. No. In fact, there's some there are pieces that are fragmentary, like um, like the Cook's Tale, which we uh, read, and in, in, uh, which is basically an introduction to a story. And it's unclear whether Chaucer wrote that and it's been lost or Chaucer intended to write it or Chaucer, you know, there, there's some th speculation that he was going to move into a different story because there's a manuscript that has a completely different story written after that. So, but it is, it is a kind of a mess of a, of a book. And it's, <laughs> a, more, it's more of a mess because each of the manuscripts we get from this time, from this era have different orders it's a it's absolutely shocking honestly that this exists as fully as it does <laughs> you know when you think of how long ago that was like just sitting in in your numbers whether you can figure out you know 13th hundreds versus 14th century you know that that math <laughs> um it the fact that we have this many versions of the manuscripts in the different orders and different like layouts, it's it's very similar to if you are looking at an author's like laptop now that would have, you know, book one XXX don't ever look at files on it <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that they all like all of these manuscripts exist and people can look at them and study them and and make these um you know assumptions or or questions or 
any of that is just 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 absolutely mind blowing to me. Um, and it's no wonder that, you know, Chaucer had is so well known and um, constantly talked about and discovered and looked into because there's all of this work that still is around that is well loved even in his time, um, which means that people would have kept copies of that. Whereas, you know, any artist or creator that is not as recognized in their own time as a great artist, it's harder to maybe find all of their stuff because nobody thinks that it is special. Um, and so having having all of these all of this information is just kind of neat um, to, to get a little bit into like his process or what's important to him or how he created his works to make it the magic that it is. So what are some of the the things that Chaucer um, innovated and why is he so central to English literature? I'm, I mean, you've mentioned his his love for what at the time must have been startlingly realistic depictions of people from all classes uh, uh, of life in 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 England um that was not done before this the main uh literary genre was the romance was the um the, the long poetry about chivalry and that those were idealized depictions of knights and kings, and that was about it. And then you go beyond that, you have sermons, you have, you know, if you go back far enough, you have classical works, which tend to be oratories or philosophical treaties. There was not anything like this yeah. uh, before Chaucer. Um, he wrote in English, which is... Uh, he wasn't the only poet who was writing in English, but it was, he was the one who really popularized this idea that you would write in your vernacular the same way that Dante popularized uh, writing in Italian uh, for when he wrote uh, the, 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 the Divine Comedy. You know, people wrote in Latin, basically. That was, that was yeah. what you wrote if you were... Or if it was more casual, they would write in French uh, because French was the language that was spoken in court most of the time. And it was, uh, as much as they hated France, <laughs> it was, you know, seen as the, the fancy language uh, that they would speak in. And so the idea that you would use a language that is spoken by the quote unquote, lesser peoples, you know, oh, this is what my cook speaks in and what they, you know, write there if they're if they wrote, which most of the time they didn't. But if they did, you know, it would be in English. And, and the fact that the things that Chaucer wrote were read and regarded highly in court meant that it was kind of this transition into, oh, I guess English can be, you know, a pretty language or something that's worthy of artistry instead of in Latin or French. I mean, it goes even beyond just doing uh, doing English in the, one of the stories you read this time, the Reeves tale. Um, there are uh, two characters, John and Alien, 
which were uh, Alain, sorry, <laughs> John and Alain from they're from east, uh, they're from North East England, and they speak in a slightly different dialect uh, in in this, and so this was the first time, I think, ever that people characters were written in dialect. Um, yeah, that was that's a quite a big uh, a, quite a big innovation. Um, Anyone that's watched um, the girl with the pearl earring and you learn a little bit about Vermeer and and the subjects that he painted and the fact that he painted, you know, the washing women and, you know, the the workers, this that same sort of connection with the non royalty is is the same like presentation that Chaucer puts in the Canterbury Tales, including these different dialects because different areas speak differently and being able to see that in writing as opposed to a very stylized, Oh, you know, this is royalty. This is a knight. This is, you know, a priest like this is, you know, whatever you're, you're, you're seeing again, these individual humans that encompass, you know, the title of the Reeve or whatever title this character becomes, which makes it even more personable and more real. Not just the characters get to speak um, in different voices. Their stories are in different voices. They're about different subject matter and they are in conversation with one another. Um, we don't really know the overall order of these poems, but we do have certain groupings. And the reason we have those groupings is because they're linked with little interstitial segments where the pilgrims talk to each other about what they've just heard. And someone will say, yeah, well, I have an answer to that. And uh, it starts, the, 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 the very first uh, story starts with the knight's tale, which is this courtly tale uh, involving a classical setting, very elaborate and very genteel, and it's about the relative uh, powers of Diana and Athena and Ares, although they're all given their Roman names, and how they're going to affect the outcome of, of a love triangle. Um, and then it's answered <laughs> immediately by probably one of the most profane stories in in, in the series, <laughs> the, the the Miller's Tale, which is also about a uh, a, a love triangle, but it, it has a very different um, outcome. <laughs> and I love that in this whole manner of you know bringing reality into it, the the interstitial between the Knight's Tale and the Miller is. The host is asking the monk, okay, it's your turn. Let's tell the story. And the miller's like, ah, 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 I'm going to come in and tell this story. And so it, it, I just am thinking of any time you've been in a situation with a bunch of people and you are talking. So whether it's, you know, oh, there's a big storm and you're all caught at the airport and you end up just talking to the people around you or 
at an event and something happens and you're just talking, there's always the one who's going to be, oh, I'm going to be very proper. I'm going to be a very polite conversation. Uh, and then there's always the really body person who's going to have the conversation that you're just like, oh, my gosh, I cannot believe they said that. And it just it's so real. It's so why has the Canterbury Tales not been made into a TV show? Why is this not a thing? I feel like there's so many opportunities here. I, I don't know, but I, I do believe it was made into a very odd um, Italian movie by uh, the guy who did the, what was the, the, the 100 Days of, of Salah, what Salah, the 100 Days of Solomon, what was his name? Oh, gosh. Um... That, that, that horrible... <sighs> Sorry, sorry out there, you yeah. cin cinephiles who, who, who love who love Italian cinema from the nineteen sixties. Um, anyway, uh, that'll be your homework to, yes. to, to, to get back to me and tell me what I'm, I'm wrong about that. Please, um, please tweet uh, at whatever the Twitter <laughs> account right. is. Right. No, I, I I do love the interstitial because, um, as you say, the the, the Miller comes in and uh and and he he's he's drunk and he says by armies and by blood and boners i can a noble tale for the nones which with i will now quit the knicks tale our host saw he was drunk of ale and sighed abide robin my laver brother some better man shall tell us first another abide and let us work in thriftily i got a soul quod he that will not I, for I will speak, or else go my way. A host answered, Tell on a devil way, thou art a fool, thy wit is overcome. Now hearken, hearkeneth, quoth the miller, Allah and some. This isn't the only argument. He starts to tell a story. It's, it's a story in which a uh, carpenter is cuckolded, and uh, that's why the Reeve gets all upset, because the Reeve is also a carpenter. And there's a lot of this, like, you know, I'm going to make fun of your profession. I'm going to make fun <laughs> of your profession. Yeah. And there's a lot, even in the general introduction, there's a lot of uh, cliches about bad aspects of, of, of these various medieval professions. Like the, the pardoner is basically very greedy and very corruptible people thought partners were very greedy and corruptible yeah. <laughs> i mean <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of cliche but then there's there's the the wife of bath who is i f i feel like one of the most remarkable characters in all of literature in that she is at once she is at once an abhorrent character and, a, and also a character that you absolutely love. You know, she's she she's been embraced uh, as a as a feminist icon. She's been denounced as a cliche of uh, female wiles. Uh, what what did you think of the wife of Bath? Uh, yeah, it's you know I keep making these comments about how you know there's this reality to it and the fact that. All of these characters have multiple sides to them and multiple interpretations. I believe that even in like even Chaucer's peers would have these conversations about, oh, what does this mean? Or like, 
argument. I can see them having arguments about, oh, I love the wife of Beth. This was, you know, the best character in the Canterbury Tales. Oh, no, she was terrible. Like, how dare she do blah, 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 like all of these things. And the fact that you can have a character like this at <laughs> in this type of a story when even now there's people there's characters that are written that are so one sided and black and white. You're like, oh, my gosh. Did you like read anything growing up? Like it just trying to make these characters real and interesting is just it, it's just so well done. It's beautiful. Uh, as as we mentioned before, there are 30 pilgrims um, and they th some of them have uh, some of them have uh, occupations that don't exist anymore. Uh, so, so, so I, I, one thing I would say is if you, if you are interested in, in reading Chaucer, um, you know, don't, don't scam, get yourself like a, a, a secondhand copy of like the Riverside Chaucer or something like that. I, I have a, an old copy of selections from the Tales of Canterbury, uh, which is by Riverside and it will give you all the glosses you need because you are going to yes. need some glosses. Um, <laughs> And, and and you want to read something, you know, it, it, you have to have it like in an edition where it's written out carefully because um, you're going to have a hard time otherwise. You know, I, I, I would I would I would say I'm, I'm a big fan of ebooks. I would say st stay away from ebooks on these days. <laughs> uh, I will admit mine was an ebook um, mainly because that's how I read everything. Um and so it was just easier, but I definitely, I want a, a nicer slash better copy, a real, like this is a, one of the books that I want for my shelf just because like it is so meaningful and I don't know why I haven't done it before. <laughs> you, you mentioned that people in Chaucer's days probably um, argued over the significance or the propriety of uh of these stories in the interstitial between the Millers and the Reeves prologue, which has just ended with <laughs> one character being stuck in, in, in the butt with a hot poker <laughs> and another character crashing to the ground in a, in a barrel and breaking his arm and then being uh, hung up as a fool by the rest of the town. And it says when folk hadn't laughing at this niece, of of Absalom and Hinda Nicholas, Diverse folk, diversely they sighed, but for the more part, they laughed and played. The, I, lo I love that line, diverse folk, diversely said. <laughs> Chaucer knows that he's he's playing with people's sense of propriety in here, and, and he's, going to, he's going to play both high and low. Yeah. Um, there is, strangely enough, there is at the end of the Canterbury Tales a redaction that Chaucer wrote where he said he's uh, he must have written at the end of his life saying uh you know forgive me for all the bad things i've written and he lists them off like he lists you know the the book of the duchess the and he says the canterbury tales you know he said the, these books they tend to, they tend to sin and all I can think of was when I read that is like wink, wink. So if, you, <laughs> if you're looking for a good book, hey, I got something <laughs> for you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. He he knows who his audience is, um, and he knows like what 
people want to read as well as he knows what he wants to write and he knows the stories that he wants to tell. Um, and it's just, it, even in the more serious pieces that he's writing, there's such a, a bit of joy that you, you can feel that he loves writing, that he's enjoying what he's doing, um, which, I mean, I always like personalize everything um but i like to imagine that he's you know writing these jokes at you know a table with his quill and going <laughs> just as he's sitting in and enjoying you know writing these these thoughts that come through his head to share with people he's in love with the act of storytelling and and it isn't just a, a book of stories it's a book of stories that illustrate genres and it's a books about the way in which stories work um there what one thing we didn't read is um there's a point in in the midst of all this where the host turns to chaucer himself who has just been this uh narrator this narrative voice who has done nothing up to this point and the host like points to him and says like what are you doing you look like you're looking for a rabbit because you're staring at the ground you get you have to tell a story too and so chaucer <laughs> launches into what is basically a long piece of doggerel uh like a a, a very bad uh romance that, that goes on and on and on about this knight sir topaz and what he's wearing and and the host cuts him off and says stop that and he says you're he says Thy drasty reaming is not worth a tord. <laughs> uh, your 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 rhyming is shit. <laughs> I don't know if you can keep that in, but <laughs> <laughs> and there are um, there are things like the nun's priest tale, which is the story of of Reynard the fox, which often gets adapted because it's it's a an animal story, and everyone loves animal stories. And it's it's a, a, just a marvelous example of that kind of fabulous animal story. So much art in in what he's doing, and and that that art is there whether he's telling a really filthy joke or whether he's telling a, a retelling of a classical source. Now, where it isn't there is when he's uh, doing a very serious and somber uh, religious treatise, and there are a few of those, including the Parson's Tale. Uh, which I, I, <laughs> as we were talking about beforehand, uh, I, I, I said to you, nobody in their right mind has ever actually read the Parsons Tale. <laughs> it's true. This is that's the one that you skim, and you're like, oh yeah, I totally know what this is talking about, uh huh, because somebody, some other poor chap, got paid to write up a description of it. <laughs> but it makes sense because you know you. There has to be a, a portion of a respect for religion. It, it was such a significant part of life that you had to kind of like not get forgiveness from, you know, the the priests that you're but like, oh, look, look, see, this is what I'm reading right now. And you show, you know, the priest, the the Parsons tale part. And they're like, oh, that's cool. That's OK. And then you go back to the Miller's tale and be fine. There are several religious uh, characters in 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 the pilgrimage and some 
Chaucer describes with a certain amount of reverence. Some, like the Pardoner, are seen as sort of despicable, although I, this is another thing that Chaucer does, is Chaucer, as the narrator, plays the role of the ignorant uh, observer who repeats everything that's said and doesn't really comment on it, and we're left as readers to understand what is meant by by that. And we're also supposed to believe that Chaucer, the character, is completely innocent of this. Um, yeah. There's, there's, he, when he describes the prioress, he talks about how dainty she is with her food and how much she eats. Um, and, and so the, the implication here is that being a prioress is a great gig because you can live in the lap of luxury. Um, but there are also characters that are just, I think described in a very, um, I think a, a lovely way, like the, the clerk, who is a, a scholar and they talk about how greater to him than all the riches of the world would be 20 books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Like we all know these people that they will buy books and they have, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of books in their possession. And, oh, they may not be able to, they may be eating ramen and hot dogs, but don't worry, they got this really great copy of, you know, whatever book they, they desperately wanted. But 20 books at that time would have been a lot of books. You Absolutely. Know. These, were, these were all written by hand. Um, it wasn't until the late 15th century that uh, movable, movable type came to England, so... And Chaucer was one of the first books that William Caxton uh, printed, so that's one of the other reasons why he's so um, central to English literature. He was one of the first people who got widely distributed when printing uh, became available. It's so fun. Even the Parsons Tale, You any of these bits, you can go to any page on this and find something that's enjoyable, find something um, that you can make special almost like, you know, if you do a search for Canterbury tales, best quotes, none of the, the lists have the same things like, you know, most of the time, if you're like, Oh, the best quotes from this movie are X, Y, Z. And everyone agrees upon that. Um, I think like most, most of the, like everyone has different areas that they really like different styles, different characters. I, I like the wife of bath. I like that whole story, but then I also really love all of the interstitials and just how, how fun it is you know it takes you out of the, the whatever fun story and brings you back into the memory and the reminder that oh this takes place this isn't just you know a short story uh whatever it's called when you have a book with multiple short short stories in it that i can't not a collaboration uh cycle uh, anthology an anthology this isn't an anthology of these travelers like this is meant to be a cohesive story amongst them all and there's all these little pieces that that connect it um and i just it's just all so fun <laughs> i do want to come back to the wife of bath because um she's uh unique in the stories in that 
in addition to her long description in the general prologue, the general prologue, which everyone knows, the Juan that April with its chowder sota, um, introduces each character in turn uh, and and says something about about them, and and, and we're told in the general pro prologue uh, a couple things about the wife of Bath, who's that she's a merchant of cloth and that she's gat toothed and that she's a little deaf, uh, and. Then when we get to the Wife of Bath story, before we get to her story, there's a prologue that's twice as long as the story, <laughs> in which the Wife of Bath talks about uh, each of her her five husbands, talks in a general way about um, the role of women in uh, medieval society, and there's a there's a really it's interesting that it opens with the line saying that experience is not an authority. But it's good enough for me in discussing uh, marriage, and that's that's an interesting point because at the time, uh, it, it's true. At the time, experience was not highly valued. The, the education was 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 valued, and classical education. So, <laughs> the the expectation is the person who is better at. Um, at explaining marriage as someone who spent a while reading Herodotus or right. something like that. <laughs> Not somebody that's been married five times. <laughs> um, the wife of Bath has um, a variety of, of, of husbands that she outlives, um, starting when she's, she's young with uh, her first three husbands whom she can control and, and whom are her favorites. And, and then as she gets older... <laughs> She marries pe people younger than herself, and there's there's an interesting discussion, frank discussion about sexuality here, where she's saying like, you know, I thought I could keep up with them, but you know, you know, I, that was a mistake or whatever. And her her last husband, um, you know, abuses her, and it's it's an interesting thing to read through the modern eye because today we would not find that a source of, of humor. Uh, certainly in Chaucer's time, it was played a bit for laughs, um, especially the way the story ends, which is the, the, the husband hits her, she falls over and, and pretends to be dead, and he comes up and, and says, you know, what have I done, what have I done? And then she socks him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which like she has some power you know she, she as a as a woman you don't have a whole lot yeah the, and the power she gets over him at the end is his acquiescence right the fact that after that after that he's going to obey her and, and and then when she launches into her own story it's um an arthurian romance about a knight who at the beginning of the thing has raped uh, a woman and he's going to be put to death for that until Guinevere intervenes and, and sends him on a quest to find out what all women want, which turns out to be <laughs> total dominion over men. Right. Um, <laughs> which, 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 which that, that's the thing. That's the sort of thing where you can either look at this and say like, wow, that's a, that's a pretty bleak um, and, and cynical, you know, take on things. But, on the other hand, it's a kind of a hard-nosed examination of where your power comes from if you're a woman where you have no economic um, authority. Right. 
Uh, and the only time you had any sort of economic authority was if you were married, um, because, of course, everything was in your husband's name. Um, you didn't have, you know, you couldn't get a credit card, obviously, because there were <laughs> no credit cards and all of your money came from your husband and being able to manage it. And so, of course, it makes sense that any time your husband dies, most of the time you can't live without someone else to, you know, have a house unless you were lucky enough um, to have your situation in such a way that you could, you know, live in the house that you your husband owned before and then died and you can whatever whoever's heir owns it and lets you stay there or or whatever. And so finding where you can get some control in life and some power um it's important now and it's important then. And and the fact that it, Chaucer writes so frankly about it and is able to, you know, it's not again, it's not these, you know, courtly tales of romance and love. It's like what actual people truly lived and being able to have this conversation and, and having these points of view from a man is also really interesting. The fact that he witnessed or talked to somebody who was able to talk about these things, or it's something that was always discussed and people always knew these types of things happened, but heaven bit forbid you write about it. Why would you like put it into writing? Like we, everything's perfect here. We have, you know, everything's fine. <laughs> The Wife of Bath's Tale is is also a, sto a story that interests me because uh, I took a class in Arthurian uh, writings, um, starting like with the earliest Welsh stuff and coming down to like the um, you know Mallory and the present day, and uh, and the Wife of Bath's story is actually um, told again uh, in in another romance. Uh, called what is it the the wedding of Sir Gawain and Dame Ragnell, uh, which has basically the the same plot beats, which are the knight who meets this loathly lady, and that's a, a trope that appears again and again in uh, romantic uh, stories. This the hag, and the other trope that it introduced is what's called the rash promise, which is the one character asks the knight, whatever I say, you have to agree with me, and doesn't say what the terms of the bargain are before binding the person to the bargain, uh, which which the, the, the hag does in the story. Um, <laughs> if you read it through, of course, it has a mega happy ending where uh, the knight gets all, everything he, he wants and right. whatever. But, <laughs> but you know, uh, I, I think I would have ended the story differently myself. But. <laughs> all right. You can go back to, the, you know, the 14th century <laughs> and write it differently. <laughs> I wish that Canterbury Tales were discussed more often in you know, this day and age outside of literary circles. Um, I think it's an important 
like looking at any part of this, if you're interested in structure, if you're interested in characterizations, if you're interested in different languages, if you're interested in, you know, whatever style of writing and storytelling, I think Canterbury Tales can really teach and instruct uh, important things. Um, and I think it would do everyone good to read or uh, come on, at, at least read the spark notes. You know, get a good idea of what's happening. You don't have to like read it in Middle English to understand what's going on. But being able to expose yourself to this kind of storytelling that isn't um, modern, but feels modern, um, I think would be really helpful to open your eyes to different um, experiences, shall we say. I've been watching the the Netflix adaptation of Sandman, and one of the things that uh, marks that comic series as as a great comic is exactly what Chaucer does, which is telling different kinds of stories in a cycle where they all make sense together. And there's even is like sort of later in the series the the cycle of stories of people telling stories trapped in a uh, a tavern. In, in, in between dimensions. Um, and, you know, I, I know that Gaiman must have been thinking about Chaucer when, when he wrote that. I agree. I haven't started watching it yet, but it's on my list, you know, in all of my free time. It's fine. I don't mind spoilers uh, because it helps <laughs> me, like, enjoy stuff better if I know a little bit of what, you know, what's happening because uh, my brain is weird like that. So don't worry. Well, my, my, my spoiler was for the, the, the comic, not for the... Well, I haven't read the comic either, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> I like Gaiman. I haven't read any of his stuff, but I enjoy <laughs> I really like his Tumblr world. Let's just put that out there, okay? His uh, conversations that he has with humanity are really enjoyable. <laughs> and now you have me imagining Chaucer with an Instagram account. Oh my gosh, yes, please. I want Chaucer's Twitter. Like, there has, <laughs> there has to be some glorious nerd out there who has created something in Chaucer's, like characterizations like i i i want chaucer to tell me about the kardashians like desperately thanks again to my co-host kathy campbell her most recent podcast is dragon mount the wheel of time podcast sophomore lit is brought to you by the incomparable network Find more funny, smart podcasts online at theincomparable.com. Write the show at sophomore.literature at gmail.com. Or join the discussion, either on the Facebook page or the Incomparable membership Slack. So please, I'm going to put this out into the world. I want a Canterbury Tales television show, preferably like a CW style, like rain era, like high fashion. I want like all of all of this. It would be great. You can either have each season is, you know, each uh, character. Probably not. Maybe a couple episodes like it. it the, uh, yes, please. Uh, anyone that makes television 
feel free to contact me. I am here to assist. <laughs> but I definitely want Chaucer's Twitter. So now I'm going to go uh, on the internet and find out if it exists.